0: This epistle reading is more of that well-known faith chapter of the Bible. It's about God's people of old who live by faith and the God who is faithful to a 1,000 generations. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as, as an inheritance even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore these all died in faith That is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. Well, let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for yet another passage confirming who you are and bringing to our hearts and to our remembrance that you fulfill your promises. Lord, build us up today through your word anchor us into the truth of your promises. And Lord, let us go from here with our eyes focused on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Yes, we continue in uh, Hebrews 11. I've been enjoying working through this this passage here, this this, uh, um, chapter. And uh, also, it's really kind of Worked with this morning's Sunday school class, which I want to encourage everyone to to come and study the Heidelberg Catechism with us on Saturday, on Sunday mornings. Um, There are a number of elders and other brothers who are going to be teaching, and um, I think it's going to be a real rich time. There was a lot of good discussion this morning, uh, but really something to help us get to understand what it is that we believe and how it is applied to our lives. And hopefully it's challenging. Hopefully it's encouraging as well. So join us next week at 9.15 in the gallery. So in 1935, T.S. Eliot, who happened to grow up just down in the Central West End here, uh, he wrote a play about the martyrdom of the Bishop of Canterbury named Thomas Becket. The title was A Murder in the Cathedral. This play takes place primarily on on the days preceding his martyrdom or his murder in Canterbury Cathedral and ends on that very day, December 29th of 1170. And during this time, after Becket returns from his exile and and is greeted by the priests and is contemplated, he's also greeted by knights that come from the king, who was Henry II at the time, and there was a lot of friction between Becket and the king at this time. Becket was contemplating that he was probably going to die or something bad was going to happen to him as uh, been ruled by the king. And these knights were here to deliver. So while Becket was contemplating this, he is visited in the play by four tempters, kind of a personification of his own heart. The first tempter comes and tempts him to escape by indulging in sensual pleasure or fleshly pleasure. The second tempter, tempts him with power, to align with the king, to put aside his, his, his faith in some areas, and to align with the king so that he may have greater power. The third comes and tempts him to align with the barons, with those who are opposed to the king, to, to, to have a different kind of power that goes against the king, but power nevertheless. And then there's a fourth that Thomas didn't expect. This fourth one says this. What can compare with glory of saints dwelling forever in the presence of God? What earthly glory of a king or emperor? What earthly pride compared with the richness of heavenly grandeur? Seek the way, Thomas. Seek the way of martyrdom. Make yourself the lowest on earth to be high in heaven. Now, you might think, how can it be wrong to be a martyr? How can it be wrong to to give your life for the glory of God? Well, Thomas Beckett answers that question in the play. He says, this last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. So remember, we've been learning throughout the book of Hebrews, but primarily in this chapter here. And last week it was even said that it's impossible to please God without what? Without faith. We cannot please God without faith. You see, all these temptations came from what was already in Beckett's heart. Even the temptation to become a martyr because it was his opportunity to rule from the tomb, so to speak to have a greater place before God, to have higher honor before God. Not unlike what the disciples wanted to to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus. They didn't want to die for it necessarily, but they were wanting that that high place in heaven. It was the temptation to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Now I've been quoting Martin Luther a lot in this this series and I'm gonna quote him again today. Luther says that scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes, and in all things seeks only himself. Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes. And in all things seeks only himself. So we find it difficult. I think we can relate to this. I certainly can. We find it difficult to escape the desire to serve our own self-interest, even in our most sacrificial and charitable moments. I think that's why the Lord says he loves a cheerful giver, one who is giving out of the heart, out of true generosity, true love. But the Hebrews, they were also struggling with their own self-interests. You see, we we think of them as wanting to turn away from God completely. They weren't wanting to turn away from God completely. They weren't wanting to to leave Yahweh. They they wanted to serve him in ways that were convenient for them. They wanted to serve him in ways that worked best for them in the midst of oncoming uh, persecution. And they were questioning, they were doubting, they were fearing this difficult path of Christ that was now laid before them by the author. The enemy uses this inward curve toward ourselves. He uses this in two different ways. He uses it, number one, so that we may serve ourselves. This curve toward into ourselves, this sinful curve upon ourselves to serve ourselves so that we depend upon ourselves, that we seek our own glory, that we serve our heart's desires in, in light of today's Sunday school class, to be our own person, that nobody would own us, but that we would own ourselves and be autonomous. The second way he uses it is to condemn ourselves to realize how undependable we are, to turn in on ourselves when things are tough, and to realize how undependable we are, all of our failures and our inconsistencies, and then we can fall into despair. And what do we want to do then? Well, we seek ways to improve our image, to do better, to work harder, to do more, to look more righteous, and hopefully feel better to look more righteous. That is a big thing that we want to do, especially in the church, especially around other people. It's interesting, I heard this pointed out recently, that righteousness is more of a relational word. You know, we're thinking about righteousness as doing something that makes us, that elevates us and makes us look good, but righteousness in the sight of God is a relational word. It is right before God, being right with God. The only righteousness is talked about here in scripture Is the righteousness that comes by faith alone the writer quoted in chapter 10 he quoted habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 that says the righteous one will live by faith and we're going to look at the one who was quoted the most as living by faith or as his righteousness being credited to him by faith which was abraham the author is using this chapter here as we said last week to, define, to, to create endurance or to help, to, to lift up the, the Hebrews, to help them to endure, to persevere. But he's also helping in that, he's helping them to change the curve, to change the curve more from themselves and out to the Lord, to help them focus on Christ by seeing how God's people have followed him throughout history and how God has remained faithful throughout by providing continual victories by providing continual fulfillments each way as they go showing us how they pressed on and he does this he does this in this passage today by showing us three things of faith he shows us the response of faith Abraham's faith response of Abraham's faith the reality of faith the reality we have to deal with by living by faith and then the reasoning of faith the faith is not some something we just follow blindly but there is a reasonableness behind faith in our faith so he starts off with the response of faith and this is Abraham and this was just read and um Appreciate that, George, the way way you spoke of this because this is a very central passage for our covenantal theology, just for who we are in Christ. You see how much Abraham is quoted by Paul throughout the New Testament. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And we just read this. When the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you, make you your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 4 says, So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. This was, there's an emphasis on the fact that Abraham went. That Abraham's obedience was without question. He knew God. When God called him, he followed. Understand something else. This is not lifting up, as as Sam preached a few weeks ago, this is not lifting Abraham up as uh, as some giant of morality or personal righteousness. It's holding him up as somebody who knew God, trusted God, and moved when God told him to move. I like what the what, what what the writer points out here. He says, "And Abraham went out. He went out not knowing where he was going." He went out not knowing where he was going. God called him to go, he went, and he still didn't really know where he was supposed to go, but he went. He had that much confidence in the voice of God. He had that much confidence In the word of God that he went and he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob meaning Isaac and Jacob also followed in his footsteps living in tents because they were heirs with him of the same promise and what were they doing they were looking for something better he was looking forward to the city that has foundations the city of God, the city that was designed and whose builder is God. This is faith that was accompanied by courage. Think about the courage that had to be a part of Abraham's moving out. This is a courageous faith, but it was a courageous faith that was based on the knowledge of God. This was not a faith that Abraham just went without knowing who God was. Abraham responded to uncertainty, one writer says, He responded to uncertainty with trust in the word of God. This word of God that promised something greater. So Abraham's not really merely an attested example of faith, but he's also an exemplary witness to the Christian community as well. His faith is not just a witness for the Hebrews, he's a witness for us. This is one of the most significant witnesses in this line, but he is one of them. And then we see this in verse, verse 11. By faith, Sarah, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Okay, so as we know, Sarah and Abraham were, were very old when they had Isaac. Abraham in chapter 12 was about 75 years old, and there was a a point where the Lord visits Abraham in chapter 18. Well, the Lord told Abraham that he was going to have a son, and Abraham laughed. That was earlier. And then he comes and visits Abraham, and he tells Abraham, this time next year when I return, you're going to have a son. Sarah was in the tent, if you remember, and she starts laughing. And it's kind of a funny interaction the way, it, the way it reads, because the Lord said, Why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And then he says, No, but you did laugh. <laughs> it's just kind of funny the way, way it's said. But, it, you know, what, kind of what he's saying is, No, but you did lie. <laughs> you were laughing because you didn't trust me. Once again, Sarah and Abraham were fallen in the same way and struggled with their own faith. You'll see later on when Abraham goes to Egypt and, and then t- says that, that Sarah is his sister, not his wife, to protect himself. That's not what you'd expect out of a faith giant, but that's what he did. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. There was a point where, where Sarah believed. and and The awkwardness here is, is To have Isaac, it took two of them. It took both of them realizing, okay, we're too old. But the Lord said that we're going to have Isaac, so let's have Isaac. There's a lot of faith that had to happen there. They're in their 90s. But yet they did it. In verse 12, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead, because he was so old, But through that miraculous event, through the faith that happened between those two, that miraculous event began the birth of where we are today. That we'll see in Luke 3, in the the genealogy of Jesus, that we see it goes all the way back to Abraham. from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This, he continues to say, is the faith of Abraham and Sarah. Their response was to act. Their response was to hear the word of God and to act upon it. And now we see from the response, we see the reality of the faith. Because there's there's this little break in this in this narrative that's interesting because it breaks from looking at Abraham and Sarah, and there's a little bit of a narrative. And it says, "These all died." Verse thirteen: These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak, notice again, foreigners, strangers, exiles. This is repeated again. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Remember, it's their faith that was pleasing to God. God was not ashamed to be called their God. But what strikes me here is the reality that we're struck with, the reality that the Hebrews are struck with as they're, as they're told to live by faith, as they're told to move forward believing that God is gonna fulfill his promise, and then you see this here, they died not having received the things promised. Well, that doesn't sound very encouraging. But that's what faith is. That is how God works. But the thing is, they didn't not receive anything. Steps along the way, they received Isaac. Ah, the promise fulfilled. They continue on into the land. The, The family grows and continues on. But they never received the full fulfillment of the promise. That example of faith is something we see in in ancient times, but we've also read about it in our own history. One thing that comes to mind, one person that comes to mind is the missionary Jim Elliot. If you're familiar with the work Jim Elliot did, Jim Elliot was, if you're not familiar with this story, in January 1956, five young missionaries, Jim Elliot, Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, spent several months making contact with a remote and very violent tribe in Ecuador, known as the Alcas or the Harani. After making some friendly contact with several members of the tribe, they began setting up camp and began inviting them for a visit. This is a very dangerous situation, but they were, they were, they were, passionate about bringing the gospel to these people they were being forced out by an oil company who was coming in and the oil company was wanting them out and they were just going to probably destroy this tribe but Elliot and 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 the missionaries were there to spread the gospel to to form a relationship with them and that all started, it's a remarkable story because they, they really were making contact with them. They, start, they even had one of them in the plane, gave them a plane ride, and were starting to make good contact with them. But then on January 8th, 1956, due to some misunderstanding, and it was really, when you read this story, it was really a crazy misunderstanding. It had really nothing to do with them necessarily. There was a little jealousy thing happening within the tribe, and they blamed these missionaries. And due to a misunderstanding among the tribe, the five missionaries were brutally killed by the tribe with whom they were planning to share the gospel. Jim Elliott, those five, never saw the fruit of their labor. They were so close, so close to the fulfillment, believing God all the way, and yet they're speared and killed and their bodies just left, plane destroyed. And that was it. If you know the story, it wasn't it. Because less than two years later, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister named Rachel took Jim and Elizabeth's two-year-old daughter back to that tribe and continued the work that Jim and the other missionaries began and formed a relationship with them. And do you know, those people became like family to the Elliots, to the Saints. Nate Saint's son, I think his name is Steve, uh, did a number of, of, of videos and, num- and he, he toured the country with the man that killed his father, who came to Christ, who he forgave, that was never seen by the ones who made first contact but they persevered and did it anyway, believing that God would be faithful. There's a reality to the faith that we step out in, brothers and sisters. There's a reality in everything that we do. If we're doing it believing God, we don't necessarily believe that God is going to completely fulfill what he says he's going to do because he sees things in the big picture. He, see, he sees things for the long haul and he has his ways of doing it and we trust and we go forward. But we trust and we go forward understanding that faith is not something that we just blindly do. There's knowing, there's hearing, and there's believing, coming to know Jesus, understanding how God works, getting to know him, And when we get to know him, we act. And listen to what what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4. Well, I'm sorry, let, let me start with verse 17 here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, of course, that seems awfully unreasonable, doesn't it? but verse 19 he considered that god was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back isaac was as good as dead to him by faith isaac invoked future blessings on jacob and esau by faith jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of joseph why was abraham so quick why was it I don't want to say easy, because it wasn't easy. It was was very difficult. But why did he even go forward with, with, with offering up Isaac? Romans 4, Paul says this. Speaking about faith, he says, In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised why did he offer go to offer up Isaac because he was fully convinced that God was not going to forsake his promise he was not going to forsake his servant he was going to do what he was going to do but he was going to trust. Abraham was going to trust God either way and move forward in faith he was fully convinced that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness but the words it was counted to him, they weren't written for his sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us. Righteousness, right with God, will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up from our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, our faith is not a blind faith by any means. And that is not what the writer is saying here by telling the Hebrews to have faith. He's demonstrating that the faith that, he is, that was witnessed throughout generations was a faith that could be known and it was made by a faithful and promising God, one who carries out his promises. The writer's trying to show the Hebrews in us that we're not without witnesses. And he's telling us to live by faith. Witnesses from the ancient past, but also witnesses from our recent past. You know what I love is many of you here have testimonies of how God has been faithful to you. It's important that we hear those. It's important that we hear the word of God and and how he fulfilled his promises in the past. It's important that we hear how God is fulfilling his promise in you, how God is fulfilling his will in you, how he's carrying out the gospel in the people of his church. We need to do that again. We haven't done that in a while. We need to hear from each other. Here's Psalm 145. Excuse me. Four through nine. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. of an unknown future. Some of you are doubting God. You're not sure God's listening to you. The fear that you have, the doubt that you have, think about where that's coming from. I don't say that I don't say that as a a challenging way, but in a sense of examination. To understand, to look back and see how God has acted in the past and that our fear isn't necessary. But I understand it. But I think it's good for all of us to examine ourselves and and wonder, where are we placing our faith? How are we moving when God calls? As he's pointing out Abraham, he's looking to what Abraham was pointing to, the whole promise of what Abraham was pointing to, what Abraham's life was all about, and this promise came to a significant point in Christ. It was going to something greater, to not only a greater land but a greater high priest. We now have that something greater, that vision of the promise, a greater understanding of the way and a greater knowledge of the Savior who came for us. Abraham lived in a foreign land, pitched his tent in a foreign land. Jesus is our ultimate example of the one who lived as a stranger in the promised land by dwelling or tabernacling among us. Christ became the ultimate example of the one who lived in tents in the land that was, by all rights, his. This is why the author tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, as he is the author and the finisher of the very faith that he is exhibiting for us. Faith forsakes all self-achievement, and rests entirely upon Christ, who has achieved eternal life for us. This is why, for justification, faith must be alone. This is why, for our righteousness, faith must stand alone. Brothers and sisters, may we look forward in faith, may our faith grow, and may we encourage one another in Christ. Pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we all struggle with fear, with doubt. Lord, I ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, especially in those times of fear, especially in those times of uncertainty, when we don't know what's going to happen. Lord, you know that we are scared in those times. Comfort us by the only comfort that brings true comfort, and that is by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.